Hi and hello watch fans and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighbourhood watchmaker, Rob Nuds, and I am joined by the one, the only, the world famous, universally adored, intergalactically feared, friendly neighbourhood jeweler from Amsterdam, Alan Ben-Joseph. How are you doing today, mate? Oh my gosh, man. For this, do send me an invoice, please, this time, because that was too kind of you. I, I see you had a good week since our last fun episode with the game we were playing. I'm doing good. How are you, man? Yeah, I have had a good week, actually, because I've been babysitting or dog-sitting, should I say, my parent-in-law's dog, who's a troubled character, but I get to take him out on walks three times a day. And what I like to do is change my watch for every walk and talk to the dog about the watchers while I'm out there walking with him. And so although this was very confusing for my girlfriend when I was packing for a week at her parents' house, because they're away on holiday, I'm, I'm there to look after the dog. Uh, I took more watches than I did pairs of socks. It blew her mind. Very, very normal for any watch nerd. So this week, we're pausing the game. We'll pick it up later. Let's do, in brackets, the regular mailbag episode. So, Rob, the honor is yours to pick the first one. I think a couple of weeks back, we led with a question from Lawrence in the network. And I've got another one in the mailbag that's been sitting here for a while that I'm actually quite keen to go with again. And I know that the episode that we had two weeks ago received a lot of downloads and a lot of positive comments. So maybe Lawrence is our lucky charm. Let's start with him. Okay. He says, how has the view on double-signed dials evolved over the years? Why does he ask? He vividly remembers a conversation in the early 2000s between a family member and a big collector. The collector said something along the lines of, why would I want to have advertising on my watch? Is it correct to think that it went from, until the 80s, dealers had a local reputation larger than the brand, so co-signing gave them a sort of stamp of approval, and then followed by a period of indifference or even negative perception as expressed by the collector in this equation, and now into the digital age where dealers gaining a cult status and thus the double sign dials are becoming sought after, driven by the Patekaholics, Hadinkies, and others. Or was it always desirable for collectors? And was the person in my anecdote a collector who was the exception to the rule? Okay, multifaceted question with some assumptions or suppositions within it. Let's do our best to address it. Let's start off with you, Alon, telling us what your experience of co-signed dials is as a retailer yourself. Oh my God. So it's like Lauren's read my mind. At Ace, you and my relationship started working on opposite sides in the chain of the watch industry. You were a supplier. I was a buyer, retailer, wholesaler, well, brand, you were brand. And you popped my cherry, my collab cherry. You and I designed the first ever Ace collab. And that has to be seven years ago, if I'm not mistaken. When this episode airs, we launched our, I believe, 10th or 11th Ace collab. So including the TRTS collab, there are 11 watches that I had the honor to work on as I don't even dare to call it a co-designer, but had to share my input in creating the product. I have a lot of them in the pipeline. I've been actually for a year internally within Ace, with my brother, my dad, with the team and the brands discussing, I really, really want to bring back cosine dials. So thank you for the question, Lawrence. Now, everything you said, 
actually, in my humble opinion, sounds quite right. For dear listeners that have no idea what the hell he's talking about. So if you like vintage watches, you'll find a lot of big names have another name on there, usually a family name. The most famous cosine dials you'll find are Patek and Tiffany. You'll find Cartier on a Rolex dial. How mind-boggling is that? But it actually isn't. Fun fact, today there is only one retailer in the world that is still allowed to make their own cosine dials, which is Tiffany & Co. The American retailer, funnily enough, owned today by LVMH, is allowed as a Patek Philippe authorized dealer to sign their name themselves on the premises of their New York boutique and the San Francisco boutique. Those are the only two boutiques Tiffany and Co. have that are allowed to sell Patek Philippe watches and have the authorization to put their own dial name on the dial. Sorry. That's a fun fact. Now, why did I mention Cartier and Rolex? Cartier is famous today for both their jewelry and watches. And yes, they always made jewelry. And they only started in the early 20th century with watches. Remember the Santos name? One of the first two watches. They made feminine watches. They used a lot of Jeja caliber movers. But they were also retailers for other brands. In some of the Cartier boutiques, Rolex was sold. So what Lawrence is referring at, up until the 1980s, and I believe it, they stopped before Second World War doing that, retailers were the local hero in the markets. Often brands, and even Rolex, were not that known. There are even ads. If you log into the Europa Star Club, you'll find ads that people are looking to buy pre-owned watches, and they specifically write in the ad, do not offer us Daytonas. Imagine that. Think about it. They didn't want the sports models. So back in the day, retailers were the heroes. They were the gatekeepers. Consumers trusted the jeweler, the watch shop, or the service atelier. And going back even to First World War, up until the Second World War, some brands, even renowned brands, would just put the name of the retailer on the dial and not even theirs. At a certain point, the co-signed is referred to watches that have both the brand name and the retailer almost in the same size on the dial. Those are often referred to as co-signed dials. Now, my dear friend Raphael Goebelin in Switzerland, one of the biggest retailers, you'll find a lot of Patek cosine dials as well. So Patek used to do it a lot. A fun fact also, I believe it's an Argentinian retailer, but it's definitely a South American one, created the gondola model because they had a request for tunnel-shaped cases. And as a tribute to that fact, every model still today is called gondola. Patek still makes gondola watches. So that's a nice historic fact. I wanted to make that full circle, going full speed ahead to modern day. I said, why don't we go back to the root of OG collabs? Those were the first ever collabs that are so trendy today in the watchmaking industry and go back to the root. So you might find 
in 2024-2025, co-signed ACE dials again. And I would actually would love to hear from you, dear listener, if that's something that you would like. Now, jumping back into Lawrence's question, it's indeed that the local reputation of the retailers were bigger, then you saw a tipping point. And then he says there's a period of indifference or negative perception. I don't think that's the fact. I think the fact is that the brands became stronger and didn't need the retailers anymore. And that evolution started, let's say, after World War II in Europe then. And today, they're so powerful, they don't think they need any retailer anymore. Like we are losing many brands because of the fact that brands are opening their own monobrand boutiques, they're doing their own e-com, they're doing their own collabs. The, the majority of them think they don't need retailers more. Take Adama Piquet, for example, they cut off everyone and they just do AP houses. So in retail, we call that the LV model, the Louis Vuitton model, totally verticalized. And then uh, Lawrence ends with the digital age where dealers are gaining a cult status and thus the double-signed dials become sought after again. I guess he's right. We are humbled and honored that at Ace Jewelers we're allowed to make those watches and we don't make them as an investment or for monetary values. But on average, every Ace edition that has been made nowadays still sells at retail a little bit above, maybe a little bit below. But for me, that's not the reason. It's a nice compliment and shows you the fact that they are kind of timeless or wanted. And that means that it's not a fad or a trend or just something that's temporary, but that you've added value to the brand and their collection. And it's a model that is sought after. Those are my two long cents. Sorry for the monologue. Rob, I'm very curious how you perceive all of this. Well, I thought that was fascinating and I was very pleased to listen to it. So thank you for sharing those thoughts. I wasn't going to take such a historical angle and I'm glad that you filled in all those gaps. From a very personal perspective, however, I love cosine dials. I think I think the reason why is because there's a sense of true relationship building and the importance of the ecosystem of watchmaking. We always talk, or well, maybe we don't talk often enough about this, but we, we often talk about how watchmaking, the idea of in-house watchmaking is a very new thing, how it was always the way that watches were built by an assembly of craftspeople coming together. Each person or persons would have their area of specialization. So you'd have crystal makers, case makers, dial makers, hand makers, movement makers, strap makers, even buckle makers coming together and supplying the components necessary to build a watch. One essential part of that chain, the retailer, often didn't have any physical representation in the product. But when you have a cosine dial, you have, I think, a really nice microcosm of the industry as it was and as perhaps it probably should be more often these days, even though it is still mostly a group effort. I feel it's a celebration of that. I feel like brands, 
And I think Lawrence's assumption that brands' individual power has fluctuated over the years is very correct. I think brands, especially in the last 20 years, got a bit big for their boots and they forgot the importance of retail representation. And I think that I love these co-signed dials because it nods to an era of mutuality, which I feel is absent. And so, yeah, you can have fun little curios. I mean, co-signing doesn't necessarily have to be a retailer. It could be like the Rolex Domino's Air Kings, which you used to be able to buy for an absolute song because they were seen as novelty items and now they're extremely collectible. And yeah, personally, I think they're cool as hell as well. I've got a Hamilton that has a dial made for the MTA, the Metropolitan Transport Authority in New York, and was awarded to a safe driver, a bus driver who hadn't had an accident for, I think, 20 years or 25 years or something. And these are great slices of history that matter a great deal to me. And I think I think Lawrence probably has it nailed on. Yes, there was a time where brands saw the value in allowing their retailers more visibility because the customers of the retailers would buy from the retailer rather than the brand. Then brands got a bit cocksure and started thinking they could do everything on their own. And then I'd say the whole co-signing was manipulated for the FOMO culture and, and the hype beasts out there. And we saw that most notably with the Patek Philippe Tiffany Nautilus that broke the internet and many hearts along with it. And now, is there a chance we could revert to that more mutual era? Possibly. There are things in the industry that point to it not being the case, like the verticalization of boutiques and brands' constant disrespecting of their long-term partners, their brick-and-mortar partners. But at the same time, there is a swelling underclass of brands, shall we say, the the up-and-coming plucky independents, the scrappy fighters who are willing to occupy the areas vacated by the brands whose eyes have been widened by the big prizes afforded Rolex and Omega and Patek Philippe over the past couple of decades. So there's there's a whole new set of kids on the block who could end up at the 11th hour saving brick and mortar retail from a, a grim future that many have predicted for a long time. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we might see a return to co-signing. We might see a lot of dials from brands that we love, like the Schofields, the Anodanes, the Fears, the Stroms, the Arconauts. You know, these guys like coming into brick and mortar and like really, really establishing a new era of independent watchmaking. So thank you for that. And let me jump in. So I wanted to ask you with the brands that you're involved at a very high level, would you be keen to do co-sandals with those retailers that you have? Let, let's take our friends in Cali, Collective Horology. 100%. 100%. Okay. All right. Yeah, Easy. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I mean, okay. I, I, I personally stand by everything I've said from an analytical perspective. I like them personally. I would be inclined to buy them personally. If you had a fusion of my favorite brand and my favorite retailer, I would like it to be as visible as possible. So while you and I were working together at Nomos, I was also looking after Hamilton Inches in Edinburgh, one of the most historic and famous and most beloved retailers in the world. And I always wanted to do a special edition Nomos with them. Uh, and I wanted to use their colors of purple and their logo, the H and I logo prominently on the dial, because I just thought you can't ask for any more as a brand. If you are aligned with a retailer that in their case was silversmiths to the queen and at the time, the queen, now the king, I suppose. I mean, that's extremely prestigious, but also just a show of respect. 
Like we should all remember our place in this ecosystem. It doesn't work without any of us, but we don't work without it. Amazing and pity that a lot of brands don't think like that anymore. While we're on this topic, Rob, and a question Lawrence probably was thinking but didn't write up because it was so multifaceted, his question already, which was amazing. What do you predict will happen in the next 10 years? Um, do you also think we're seeing a slow collab fatigue or don't you feel that? And where do you think it will go in this context for the watchmaking industry? Do, will we see even more or do you think we'll see less collabs? I don't think we'll see more because I think it's actually quite hard to see more. I think, yes, there's a bit of collab fatigue, but it might not be because of the collaborative aspect, rather the way those collaborations tend to be hyped, sold, and then forgotten about immediately. I mean, we don't know the future, but we do try and make plans based on what we've seen occur in the past and what we see occurring in the present and make projections of a likely trajectory thereafter. And that's why we've tried to pursue the model we have with collaborations with brands so that there isn't the time pressure, there isn't the bullying aspect to it that there was before. Now, to our discredit, that might end up with us not selling as many watches as we could if we leverage those somewhat unsavory tactics. But I'm not willing to do that even if it means financial ruin, <laughs> which is something I'd like to avoid. But you know you know what I'm saying. Like To us, the values of how we do business are more important than the volume of that business itself. I don't think that many media outlets will be able to afford to take the same tack as we did. I don't think many retailers would be as interested in having collabs structured in the same way with brands because they do need the FOMO in many cases to get the money that they've invested back quickly because sometimes return on investment isn't just based on the volume of the investment, but also the speed that that return can be accrued because you know you have to keep the lights on and there are important dates throughout the year where big bills need paying. And getting a quick turnaround on a project is sometimes essential. For us, of course, it's not, which is why we're able to pursue a model that nobody else has attempted to pursue. We'll see what the response is to that, and then we can make a further assessment as to whether we were right or whether we were misguided, and whether the industry, despite complaining about collabs and FOMO culture and hype and all this, was actually just complaining for the sake of complaining, and people buy those things more often than not. I do think collabs continue. I do think that there's value to them. I don't think you can have too many good collabs. I think that there are plenty of bad ones that can take a running jump and should never have existed and don't have any trueness to them, any organic relationship behind them or any soul. I think that those collabs are a waste of time. But I do think that there's plenty of space for like-minded people to come together, maybe from different industries, and to bring us something new and exciting. Because that's all we really want, is something to talk about and something to share with our fellow watch aficionados. Going from that amazing question, thank you, Lawrence, we're going to one from Sana, who sent it through the contact form on our website, therealtime.show. Sana writes, sometimes watches, instead of a quick set date, has a function that allows you to move the hour hand to set a date. So that's the old school method. I was wondering about your opinion to why a manufacturer would choose that today instead of a quick set. 
It is easier to produce, but does it cost less, etc.? And does it affect the movement when you use it? I just never think it moves smooth, but instead feels like you're damaging the watch. That's the end of our question. Just for me to quickly explain for our dear listeners that maybe didn't understand completely what we're talking about. Up until, I don't know exactly what decade Rob will school us, up until the 50s or the 60s of the 20th century, you didn't even have a quick set function for your date. So if the crown is in position zero, winding or screwed down, that's zero. One usually is date, two is time. With Zenit, it's the opposite. One is time, two is date. But up until that they developed that technique, you had to manually move the both hands, the hours and minutes, from eight or nine o'clock in the evening to midnight, and then you swing back. So you don't make a full 360 round with the hour hands. You go eight, midnight, eight, midnight. So you swing back and forth. That's what she's referring at. Rob, the mic is yours. Yeah, I thought that's what she was referring to as well at first, but I think that she could also be referring to an hour jump hand. What Amiga does, you mean? Yeah. So basically her question remains the same, whether she's referring to the swing back and forth, which requires you to move the hour hand back to normally around 10 o'clock, right? Or nine or 10 o'clock. And then it reloads the mechanism and you move it forward and it fires forward the date when it passes midnight or something more likely you're to find on a GMT, like an independent hour set mechanism where you roll the crown, the hour hand jumps one hour increments at a time. And that's like a quicker way to set a date than to actually scroll the hour around 24 hours. So for example, a modern version of a watch that uses that is a Fortis Flieger GMT. They have this hour set rather than a quick set. And that's, um, yeah, totally fine. I know what she means. Sometimes it feels a bit grindy, like it's sort of jumping. Like that's just pretty normal for those mechanisms. I don't think you're likely to damage the watch, but there are a couple of good reasons to not have a quick set. So the quick set function wasn't around for as long as people think. It really only became commonplace in around the 70s when Rolex upgraded their Datejust line, which had been released all the way back in the 40s in 45, to feature the quick set as well. So prior to that, and even beyond in some cases, because um, correct me if I'm wrong, Alon, but don't a lot of those early NOMOS manuals have the swing mechanism? Indeed, they do. And... For those that are sometimes in shock or disappointment, I said take solace in the fact that they're nice and slim and it gives you OG vibes. Let's address Sana's question directly. Why would this be preferable? Because the Nomos is a modern watch and it's only existed in a period when the quick set date exists alongside it. So Alan's right. It can be slightly slimmer. You need fewer components. So fewer pieces need to be manufactured. Perhaps the very best thing about the old swingback mechanism or even the hour jump, and I think the swingback mechanism is better for this, is you are less likely to cause damage to the rest of your watch. Now, a quick set date mechanism can only be used between the hours of around, say, 2 a.m. in the morning up until 10 p.m. at night. 
if your hands are within that window, which I used to call the dead zone, so about two hours before, two hours after, then the teeth of the date jumping mechanism will already be engaged. And so if you try and force the date to quick set, you are risking ripping those teeth off and having them floating around in your watch and causing untold problems for however long it takes before you notice an error. So brands either have to create a failsafe around that, which is actually, ironically, we talk about Nomos all the time, but what Nomos did with the release of the DUW6101 caliber, they created effectively a slipping clutch that would pick up the tension created between those teeth if you did try and operate the quick set mechanism within the dead zone and allow the crown action to slide beneath the power generated by the crown action, at least to slide beneath the mechanism that would otherwise have ripped those teeth off. It didn't move the date within the dead zone, but it didn't allow for any damage to occur. So you either have to come up with that idea or you have to run the risk of people accidentally picking up their watches when the hands have ground to a halt around midnight or 11 and immediately own to set the date. Bad idea. First thing to do whenever you pick up a watch, pick up your watch, move the hands to the lower half of the dial so it's like 20 past seven or something. Set your date to the day before, then wind the hands around past 12 until the date clicks over to the right day so you know if you're in AM or PM, and then set your watch that way. That's what I would do. So to Sam's question, it's not only fewer components, it's a massive reduction in servicing concerns. So it has its drawbacks, it has its negatives, but for me, I don't know, I, I can handle it. Absolutely, I can handle it. I can especially handle it when there's also a quick set pusher that allows the date to be advanced alongside that mechanism. I couldn't have done that better. Compliments, Rob. Thank you so much. Sana, I hope that answers your question. If not, please get back to us. I'm sure it answers a bit of the question, but to be quite frank, it's quite a complicated subject because there's a lot of ways to look at it and there's a lot of weird little date mechanisms that have existed over the years, different variations on standard complications that we take for granted now. So if anybody in the network or anyone beyond the network that would like to join the network or would just like to remain a listener for whatever reason, whether you don't have WhatsApp or you just don't like getting involved in the big community, which I totally understand, then please do send us messages and ask us specific questions because the broad questions are very fun for us to attack because we can take them wherever we want to take them. But I am aware of the fact that sometimes you might really have a very specific answer that you're seeking in mind that we miss because the question itself is quite a large topic. So if you have specific questions about specific date mechanisms versus other mechanisms that seem to do the same thing, but in different ways, do get in touch. Going to the next question. This is from Brett Banchek from the US, avid member of the Real Time Show Network as well. Very interesting question. You and I both love the US. I've lived there. You haven't, but spent probably equal amount of time as I did. Brad asks, why are there so many more independent watchmakers coming out of Europe than the US? We have a few great ones, but not the density. I always find this interesting because when independent watchmakers are asked what their number one market is, they frequently say USA. So Rob, before we dive into that, what are the top three or five high-end independent watchmakers you like in the US? Top four or five independent watchmakers I like in the US. Bloody hell, I'm yeah. not sure I could name five. I mean, I'll start with um, Josh Shapiro. 
I love his work. I think he's an example, set a wonderful example for people to follow. Um, American watch brands, I mean, watchmakers, you're talking like proper, <laughs> proper watchmakers, guys with tools. I mean, Alexander Beauregard is up in, in Canada, if he can't, in Montreal, uh, Swiss brand, but Canadian roots. So that's something. Good grief. I mean, Vortic? You already gave the answer. So, and, and this drives a point to what Brett is making. I My top one is indeed Josh Shapiro as well. I have to think of the Weiss company. There is uh, RGM, the, the, these three letters. He makes rather decent watches, but I forgot the three letters. Yeah, that, he's in Philly. Right? Oh, well, not Philly, but I think sort of um, Pennsylvania somewhere. Yeah, you know who I mean. It's RGM, I think. RGM, yeah. 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 So, and then you have something Baron Oak or something with Oak. Oak and Oscar? Are they American? Oak and Oscar. I think they're American. They're pretty cool, yeah. Okay, fine. And then you had uh, going down in, 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 in production capabilities, more of a branding more. But I think I believe you have MVMT, which was bought by the Movado Group. Then obviously the Movado Group is American-owned. But I don't believe they produce anything in America. But I think that Brett is talking about artisanal yeah. watchmaking or actually produce pr- production capabilities. And then going from Fossil, an offspring of Fossil is obviously Shinola. Mm, yeah, well, I, th- I know Shinola, but I, I don't even, to be honest, to me, they're more of a fashion brand than they are a watchmaker. Well, in their defense, I have few buddies that help them build up the factory from scratch in Detroit, so Motown, and they actually do a lot there, Rob. So in their defense, they're less of a fashion brand that than we think they are, but their marketing spiel is American lifestyle, and they also make uh, baseball gloves and I don't know what kind of accessories. But okay, we're deviating. So anyways, Brett, maybe... I'll jump in first, always taking a historical angle. So the U.S. was, after the industrialization, together with the U.K., the biggest manufacturer and at a certain point the number one in quantity of pocket watch calibers. Am I right, Rob? Yeah, undoubtedly, yeah. Undoubtedly. Fun fact, IWC, International Watch Company, was founded by an American, F.A. Jones. So. He came to Switzerland because that was a low-wage country. And he went to Schaffhausen by the Rhine River because he could have free energy. So using aqua power. So that was an interesting fact. The first time I heard that, that that sounded odd, right? Because there is hardly any country in the world that today is as expensive as Switzerland. So the Americans dominated. They made millions and millions of calibers. And one thing that really helped was the growth of railroads. So timing was of the essence. Hamilton, glorious history, American brand, owned today by the Swatch Group, made in Switzerland. They don't do anything in the US, if I'm not mistaken. So that was lost. The 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 the, the trade, the profession, the skills were lost. Now, jumping from the beginning of the story to the end of his question, I'm making a, a leap and then we'll move back and discuss everything in the middle. 
The U.S. market is today indeed the number one export market for Swiss watchmaking. But that's only the last five, maybe 10 years. Up until then, the U.S. market was not even in the top 20, if I'm not mistaken. In the last 50 years, Japan, Hong Kong, and Singapore always dominated the first three positions for high-end watchmaking coming out of Europe. And let's specifically say Swiss made. The Americans caught up, and I actually believe that is due to the fact, and we need to be grateful to Apple. Why am I saying that? Apple made a lot of Americans put a timekeeping device on their wrist for the first time ever. And I believe that fueled an appetite to wear a real watch after they got fed up with this notification machine on their wrist. But okay, so Rob, do you agree with what I'm saying? And what happened in between? And why do you think that there aren't that many? Why can you and I not at the speed level Name 10 watchmakers, American watchmakers. And and before you answer, just a little shout out to Carlo. He founded Dumoreau in California. He's an architect. But the only thing he does is designing. So is he a watchmaker? I always say whomever creates watches is a watchmaker. But looking at the second definition of it, does he make stuff with his hands? Or is he an engineer or a watchmaker? No, he isn't. But there is a lot happening in the US right now. I mean, there's a lot of design, and I think there's a couple of interesting things happening. I mean, we haven't mentioned Barrel Hand, you know, the uh, yeah. the guy that like 3D printed his own watch. Like, that's pretty cool. That's um, something no one's really tried to do before. So that's innovative uh, by the definition of the word. I think the question is definitely pertaining towards hand craftsmen. Like, why are there not enough people coming out of apprenticeships and starting their own watch brands in America? And it's a very simple answer. There's a generational gap. Same thing happened in the UK. Watchmaking, mechanical watchmaking, all but ceased operations. The UK was the the most important developer of watches in the 1700s, and then it dropped off a cliff by the end of the 20th century. People in the UK thought watches were made by robots in Japan. Maybe they were right for the vast majority of the watches sold in the UK during that time. Same thing happens in the US. There just aren't people being trained. Colleges close up and down the country. Tools are sold off, repatriated to Switzerland. Even the iconic brands of America, like Waltham and Elgin and Hamilton, cease to be American or even operational. There's a huge hole in that market that will take time to fill. Meanwhile, in Central Europe, the culture of watchmaking persisted, even if the volume of watches being created during those years dropped significantly it was still something that people did it was a culture that was important to many more regions and where there were mechanical watches being made it was most likely in this part of the world where i'm sitting really around the eastern part of germany and then switzerland and so it's less surprising that we have more people who are exposed to the concept of watchmaking from a young age we have more who are connected to the industry through their families. We have second, third, fourth, fifth generation watchmakers as standard around this part of the world. There's simply more opportunity just through the numbers of available watchmakers that, that there will be those that branch off and start their own brand. 
There are just many, many talented people working at a much higher level. This is the epicenter of the craft. Will that change in the US? Well, it certainly will get better, I would think, but I don't think we're going to see a radical shift because this part of the world's got such an advantage. Most young American watchmakers, when they're really good, they come over here and they're more likely to start up their trade over here because they've got access to manufacturers, dial makers, case makers, sapphire makers, you name it. Like they're on down the street, you know, they're just right next door. If they do it in US, like Shapiro does, Jesus, he buys his movements from Dresden, for God's sake. His movements come from a factory about half a mile away from where I'm sitting. And that's maybe the cleanest example I can give of the state of American watchmaking right now, because I put him right there at the very top. You know, what he's doing is excellent. And his movements that he's making now himself over in the US, they are something special. He could end up being the George Daniels of his nation if he keeps going in this direction. He could really have an impact on generations to come. So here's keeping our fingers crossed for Josh and also looking forward to his first appearance on the Real Time Show because we've been chatting to him recently about coming on. But he had a big release over the summer. And since then, we haven't picked up the communication. So let's get on that. Let's get him on the show and let's move on to the next question. Okay, next one. This is from... Spets Naz. Now, Spets, I assume that's the first name. We always just refer to them as Spets Naz. It's one of our most beloved followers on Instagram only, though, because Spets does not have WhatsApp and we don't want to push it upon them. So we get our communication from Spets via IG messages, and they're always extremely pleasant, complimentary, heartwarmingly so to us. And so we have some questions from Spets that we'd like to answer now. What do you think are some less well-known Swiss brands that are high quality? This question is motivated by an old friend of theirs that always tells them that Eberhard makes watches which are close to the quality of Rolex. Now, there are a few, aren't there, Elon? Like people who are in the know always have their little go-to brands that have uh, excellent quality for the price. Why don't you start us off with a couple of your favorites? Spets, thank you so much for your dedicated support, your passion, and your feedback nonstop. We love it. And for all our dear listeners that do too, the more, the merrier. Please keep them coming. That's what we do it for. We make this show for you guys because if nobody was listening, then Rob and I can just stick to phone calls. Anyways, my brands, I want to give a shout out to Tutima, Glassute, a brand that deserves way more attention and respect. Perele, I think, is a brand that needs a shout out. Now, Eberhard used to be top, 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 top. I don't know if today they're up to par with modern Rolex quality. I don't dare to say that. But in Italy, Eberhard is a world, world, world top class brand. But in the rest of the world, maybe less. Let me think what other brand deserves because he he specifically said no historic brands right Swiss brands so a brand that 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 I've been raving about ever since I've met them at Watches and Wonders 2023 is Charles Zuber something that could make a nice a spectacular rise Corum I think is a brand that has a lot of potential. That's it for now. Probably I'm doing this at top of my mind, Rob. We didn't prepare this. You go first and probably a few more brands will pop into my head. 
Okay, we can do it in a bit of a relay thing because there were a few that sort of came to me that I thought were quite interesting. One of them, actually, a good friend of yours and uh, watch brands with which you've collaborated. I was going to have Cedric Bell on in mm. there as my list. If I'm going to mention one of your friends and collaborators, I should also mention one of mine. I love Fortis watches. I think that in terms of quality, bang for your buck, it's pretty much the best out there. And I really do mean that. I know, okay, full disclosure, I help Fortis with retail development in the US. And that means I've sent them the occasional invoice. But I own a Fortis watch that I wear more than many in my collection because it's just supremely well built. It's rugged. It's got excellent features, beautiful attention to detail in the manufacturing. So the, the bezel click is always good. The micro adjust on the clasps on the bracelets is superb. Great, great brands, superb paint application on the dials, excellent bricks tracks loom. So that's like a Lumacast solid compound on the dial. The new Nova Nort, I have one on order, just the normal one, not the limited edition one. I preferred the normal one to the 100-piece limited. It has Lumacast numbers, Arabic numerals, ceramic, matte ceramic bezel, gorgeous use of materials, excellent a confluence of design ideas and, and brilliant, brilliant branding and vision. I think going forward, that's a brand that I would say I would I would buy any of Fortress's watches ahead of any of Rolex's right now, and I'd, I'd be thinking I'd get in a good deal for that. Another one that I have to mention is Zinn. I think Zinn make really good tool watches. They have maybe the most unattractive website in all of watchmaking. And I say that with a lot of endearment. Yeah, I, I love Zinn. I really do. They're extremely German, extremely Frankfurt. The watches are also that plays to their advantages and disadvantages. Obviously, their communication strategy can be somewhat leaves something to be desired because of that. And their website is part of that problem. But the watches themselves are undeniable. They're just so good. Like they, Their quality is next level. And I would really, really encourage anybody that's interested in picking up a nice little chronograph to check out the recent Zen releases. There was not so long back, the 356 Pilot chronographs. There was a couple released at the same time. There was a limited version, but I actually prefer the standard model myself. The limited version had an applied Zin logo in silver, a sort of gray brush style, and light silver subdials. And then the standard one had black subdials, a more fume dial, and sort of aged radium loom. They're great, great, great watches. There's a white one with black subdials as well. And these pieces, they're like 38 and a half millimeters in diameter bit thick 15.6 including the crystal which is a bit stubby but trust me they're really nice objects really well made other brands air rain our mate tom he makes a great watch uh his type 20s are some of the best chronographs you can get at that price point i'd even say they're some of the best chronographs you can get under 5k let alone the prices that you asked to pay there which i believe are under three still, which is absolutely stunning. One more off the top of my head, Aquadive, actually. You know, I like Aquadive. That's an affordable brand that makes good quality, really rugged watches. Keep an eye on the loom application on the bezels. That's, I'll say that much. Um, it can be somewhat inconsistent from model to model. But in terms of case quality, dial printing, loom performance, strap quality, overall package, really, really good. and very comparable for anything in its price point and outpunches many, many things way beyond it. Excellent. Well done. I 100% agree with, I agree with everything you mentioned, by the way, but Fortis, for sure. But Fortis, for me, is 
breaking through. They they are like Oris. You wouldn't mention Oris either because they are becoming mainstream. Fortis for me already made it, but I agree with you. Now, thank you for reminding me of Cedric Bellon. Love him. Tom from Aaron, Ella Buanco. Love him. Obviously, I, I could have give a shout out to our dear friend Hakim Al-Kadiri from Elka Watch. But I was really thinking about those that are really out there. I mean, uh, on the show, we had our dear friend, we forgot to mention Martin Kloko, right? Sherp. I mean, that's one of the reasons also we did a collab because we love, we love the underdogs. Yeah. I've just realized I completely whiffed on that question because there's one key word I just ignored all the way through and that was yes. Swiss. I answered with a German. Martin's German, Sherpa's yeah. German, although... Again, actually, to be honest, all right, Spets, sorry, mate. We're taking this one a little bit further maybe than we should have done. Aquadive, I think, probably has their headquarters in Vienna because I'm pretty sure they're part of like the whole Synchron thing going on with Rick Marai. Yeah. And then what was the other one I said? Also, like, Fortis is Swiss, but okay, maybe not small enough to qualify for this. And Zen is German. And who else did I mention? I mentioned Tutima is German. Yeah. Airing's Dutch. Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So we deviate, but okay. Let me say something. So, but we love to also give those brands a podium. So Maurice de Mauriac, Swiss. Oh, good one. Yeah. Zurich. Yeah. Very nice. That's why we wanted them to show. Not really Swiss, but it is Swiss made. Linda Verderlin came on the show. Oh yeah. Because we said, Hey, we love it. It seems they disappeared. Let's call them. Now, Schwarz Etienne, I don't know if they still exist. I think they do. It seems they have more. Of course they do. They have more success with Ming, it seems, than their own watches. Um, but Schwarz Etienne, amazing brand. Now, I do think that, thanks to Guillaume uh, Lede, our sexy boy, Volcan got finally a spotlight on them and get more credit that they really deserve. So does Nevada Grenchen. Uh, you got Zeitwink on the show. Amazing story. Oh, that's a really good show, actually, because that is quality, proper quality. Yeah, Zeitwinkel is a great choice because their movements are next level. I'm not sure the aesthetics are all there all the time, but the movements are absolutely gorgeous. They are a victim of their own modesty. So Zeitwinkel, for sure. Now, I've always loved Armand Nicolet. Do you even know that brand, Rob? I mean, I know of it, but I've never had a soft spot for him. I, I'm going to talk about ZRC 1904 when we've got a second, because now I've got my I've got my eye in. I'm on the Swiss brands now. Okay. okay, tell us about Armand Nicolet. So, actually, there's not much to tell about it. I I I I believe that like Eberhard, they're world famous in Italy, and that's it. But it's an old, proper Swiss brand that makes decent watches, but. The question is, what happened to them? What happened to Eberhard? What's going on there? We need to bring them on the show and ask them the question. We don't assume. We don't gossip. We go straight to the source. Now, a trick question for you. Doxa, is it there? Is it Oris Fortis level? Is it still an underdog? What is it for you? For me, it's better than Oris and not as good as Fortis in terms of absolute quality of the build. But it's also pretty undeniable. Doxa was on my shortlist uh, of, of names to mention and probably should have been right at the top considering I just went off to different countries as I pleased but Docs is amazing it has it has true a, a true icon within the collection at least it has a lot of good additions over the last few years that broaden out its appeal yeah it, it's it's up there absolutely I'd say like Aquadive is is maybe a little cheaper and of similar quality but Doxa does definitely outpunch it in terms of quality what Doxa does do well 
that is not what it's most often thought of is it's carbon stuff. It's carbon cases, it's carbon bezels, and their click action is absolutely superb. So if you've not had a carbon doxer on your wrist, if, like me, perhaps you're a bit of a purist and you turned your nose up at it at first, put your preconceptions aside, get it on the wrist. It's a really weird wearing experience, but it's absolutely wonderful so comfortable so novel so unlike anything else and still with that genuine doxa flavor so yeah good shout doxa's a great one i'm sorry i'm getting fired up while i'm listening to you i'm thinking so uh, we had chrono swiss on the show but for me if you make it to watches and wonders then you're already you're there but what about last one and then i'll shut up favre Leber. they had a big revamp with my friend Philippe Rotten SEO. He silently disappeared. The site is still active, but have you seen or heard anything from them in the last two, three years, Rob? You know, I haven't heard anything from them for quite some time, to be honest. I did do a couple of reviews about them in a short space of time during that revamp, and I was quite impressed because there's quite a history behind that brand. Why don't you give us a couple of minutes rundown of that history, and then we'll wrap up the show. Sure thing. So I actually find their tagline even humorous, they call themselves the second oldest watch brand, if that's so important. But I guess they are most known for their altimeter watches. So they focused in that revamp that you're talking about, um, about uh, alpine climbing, alpineering, and they actually have a mechanical uh, altimeter, which I think is uber cool. Very tool watches, they make dive watches, and then they brought the price points from around 5K back to 2000, and then they seem like little Certinas. And while I was listening to you, I always do a quick test to see if a brand is still alive. I look at their Instagram if they're still posting. So while we're recording this, their last post was three days ago. So it seems the brand is still alive and kicking. Um, they exist in 1737. I think that we should bring them on. I let them tell them about their history, their restart, and what they are planning to do to gain more recognition. Yes, very good idea. I couldn't agree more. So if you would like to suggest any other brands that we should get on the show, the best platform to use these days is our new dedicated Instagram handle at therealtime.show, but you can still contact us via our personal handles, either at Rob Nudds, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, or at Alon Ben Joseph at A-L-O-M-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. You can also contact David at D-A-V-A-U-C-H-E-R, or via email at either Rob or Alon at therealtime.show. We'll be back soon with an interview with one of watchmaking's finest. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking.